You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, I read somewhere that you really ought to talk to your plants, so here they are. Good morning, plants, just sitting here on my patio. Uh, Let me tell you about the one about the traveling ficus, you know, who... Well, you know what I noticed? They don't ever talk back. They don't laugh. They don't respond at all. They never talk to me. But I kind of wonder, are they perhaps talking to one another? Maybe they are, and I'm just missing out. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. In this episode, we dive, in one case literally, into the world of non-human communication. Humans are a chatty bunch all day long and sometimes well into the night. We're talking, emailing, texting. The fear of being left out of a conversation leads some of us to refresh our email or Twitter accounts with the frenetic energy of a Pavlovian pellet-hooked rat. But what if we told you that some conversations are passing you by anyway, and refreshing your browser won't help? That's because understanding the conversations of non-human species requires decoding their signals. So what could the high-frequency squeals, the chemical pulses, and the electrical activity reveal about what other species are saying? Well, let's put it this way. You're not the only one who's stressed out, searching for dinner, or trying to coordinate a social event. This episode, You've Got Whale. Sound waves can travel through any substance. In fact, sound cannot exist if it doesn't have something to travel through. That's why no one can hear you scream or laugh or sing in the vacuum of space. You're listening to my problematic voice now because sound waves travel very nicely through gas, that is air, to my microphone here, and eventually to your ears. Sound also passes through liquids, for example, water. And some animals take advantage of that fact for communication. For them, the ocean is the world wide web. This beach in Aptos, California is the closest that I'll get to narwhals today. These animals are diving and swimming in the cold, briny waters of eastern Canada and Greenland, surfacing tusks first in a gap of Arctic sea ice. That long snaggletooth of the males makes the narwhal distinctive and also the weirdest among whales, but it's only one reason this animal intrigues scientists. My name is Susanna Blackwell. I'm a bioacoustician with Greenridge Sciences. Dr. Blackwell and her team designed an ingenious method of recording narwhals. They attach suction cups to the dorsal ridge of a few whales. Then they attach acoustic devices to the cups using a tie that was designed to dissolve after a few days. The tie dissolved and set the acoustic devices free, which Dr. Blackwell and her team used GPS to recover. We're discovering narwhals make all kinds of sounds that we didn't know about because uh, we'd never recorded them in the way we have. In some ways, it's a race against time. Thawing ice due to climate change is opening up the Arctic to new sounds, that of cruise ship engines and the seismic soundings of oil surveyors. We're concerned about the effects of man-made sounds on narwhals in the Arctic. Let's move out of the wind and go to Dr. Blackwell's home. It's just a short walk away. She says she has a surprise. Okay, come up. I'm going to show you the narwhal tusk. You have a narwhal tusk here in your home. Yes. I I have to mention right away to those who may be horrified to hear this, 
that this is actually a museum quality replica. Because narwhal tusks are definitely not legal in the U.S. You cannot import them. You cannot export them from uh, Greenland. And we're looking at a tusk that looks like a spear. And what is that, six feet long? Yes, it's six feet. And it was actually the small one of the two I could have bought. They had another one that was nine feet long. What's the tusk made out of? Well, it's a, it's a tooth. So it's ivory. Um, this one is made out of epoxy. <laughs> it's important to remind us that yes. this is not an actual yes, no. narwhal tusk, but it is still impressive. Narwhals make an array of sounds. It's not just one sound. Can you just introduce us to the kinds of sounds they are? We're going to listen to them in a moment, but what kinds of sounds do narwhals make? They, well, they make sounds that are click-based, that sound uh, like a series of clicks in all kinds of patterns. They make whistles. They make thing, th- sounds that sound like uh, squawks, even a little bit growly type sounds. Can you tell us how the sounds work with the animal's ability to echolocate? Yeah, so the, the fundamental basic sound in the narwhal repertoire is a click, an echolocation click. And then the animal, before it does another click, it listens to hear the echo from that first click. As it comes back, the echo will have information in it that can help the animal determine whether what echoed back was a squid or a fish or the seafloor. So the click is one of the sounds they make and also the sound that they're listening to. Um, The other sounds, the growls and the buzzes and things, those have another purpose which we'll get to. Yeah, so many of the other sounds are actually made up of clicks. If you can make a click, you can make them faster or slower and, and, you know, turn them into other kinds of vocalizations. Uh, but, but they're not the only ones. As I said, there are also whistles and some other squeaks and stuff that uh, um, are hard to describe. We're going to listen to some of the animals that you recorded. They have lovely names. Where was Thora when she made the sounds we're about to hear? Uh, I believe she was on a dive. She was on her way to start feeding. And she was making these calls that are called burst pulses that are made up of clicks that are repeated very quickly and that then get that sort of tonal quality, this, you know. Do we know why she's making this particular sound? We don't, but uh, these burst pulses have an individual quality to them. That is, no two animals seem to make the same burst pulses. But it's unique to that animal. It's unique to that animal, yeah. It seems to be unique. They are often produced, if the animal is isolated, for example, and is trying to find its buddies, uh, they may produce this sound. And, and if that sound is linked to the animal, you can immediately see how it would be a way for them to get together again. Because they heard, you know whatever, Johnny, calling, and so they know it's him because they recognize his call. We'll hear a different sound from Frida. The reason I included that particular sample uh, was that I thought it sounded funny. It sounded like one of those things that kids blow in. A trumpet? Yeah, like a trumpet or something, and... And this is not one of those burst pulses. So this is just one of the many other sounds that narwhals make. What part of the body of the narwhal makes these sounds? Well, it's structures that all toothed whales have that are behind the melon in the head. They look like little lips. In fact, in sperm whales, they're called monkey lips. And it's uh, using pressurized air that they, they, you know, I don't, I'm not sure how exactly it works, but uh, they make, make these clicks like that. You say it's in the head. It's, yes. So it's not in like their throat or no. the chest. No. It's in their head. Yeah. Yeah. And behind that bulbous thing that's called the melon. They're saying something and what they're saying has some intentionality. Yes. To give you an example, a mother may call her calf over uh, because she detected some danger or something. One of the many reasons that you did this recording project, you're concerned with human-made sound in the ways in which it might be disrupting their environment. And what kind of sounds are we talking about? I think I need to mention the fact that the reason it's becoming a problem is because the Arctic has less ice than it used to. And so for 
centuries, eons, narwhals were protected simply because their environment was so difficult to get to. But now that there is less and less ice in the summer, there is more and more human activities. There are boats, there are cruise ships, there are uh, ind industries, either mining exploration or petroleum exploration that is taking place. And it is, this is bringing in all kinds of sounds that the narwhal did not evolve with. We're concerned that uh, these activities may have effects on the animals that could be detrimental to the survival, the long-term survival of, of the species. One of your particular concerns is the air gun pulse. Where are air guns used? So air guns are used by the seismic industry that when they are looking for oil and gas in the seafloor. And, uh, and they can do that by uh, utilizing these loud sounds that are directed down towards the seafloor and that bounce off the different layers. And then these echoes are analyzed back sort of a little bit like the whales themselves do with echolocation. And, and so they can come up with whether there are petroleum reserves down in the seafloor. And those sounds are very high amplitude, so they're, they're basically loud. If it weren't for these human-made sounds that are now echoing through the Arctic, what's the loudest sound that a narwhal would hear? Well, actually, the icebergs that are cracking are incredibly loud. The thing is, an iceberg will crack and maybe crack again a minute later, but then that's it. It's not like seismic exploration often takes place over sometimes weeks continuously, where they are every 10 or 20 seconds uh, doing another shot. And those sounds could do two things for the whales, disrupting their ability to communicate with each other, um, but also it would be frightening for the animals. Mm -hmm. So it might be going through over and over, being frightened and startled, being stressed out by these sounds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure enough. And, and in the studies we've done to date, we've discovered one bay where the animals seem to do a lot of feeding. They always seem to go there and do a lot of feeding. And just to give you an example, if that is where the sound source was and they left that bay, well, then maybe they wouldn't be feeding as much, uh, which would be a serious effect. Let's listen to Balder. Balder is a, is a male narwhal, so presumably he has one of those big tusks. He was a little male. <laughs> he has a little tusk. Okay, let's hear what he has to say. What I'm hearing there are clicks and then like a cry. Mm -hmm. Clicks and a cry. Is that mm -hmm. what we're hearing? Yeah, so the clicks are certainly clicks by all kinds of animals that are around there that are clicking for, you know, whatever reason. Maybe they're, they're foraging. The other sounds you hear would be what we presume are communication sounds. Those cries, you yes. mean? Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, you have to realize that we're so early on in, in the studies of these animals that there's very little we've actually proven um, but it's assumptions based on, you know, studies done in other toothed whales like dolphins and so on. And do they use them at every depth or do the calls change depending on whether or not the whale is at the surface or if the whale is, is diving? The vast majority of these calls that we have sort of lumped into this, you know, big category of social calls because we assume they are for communication, uh, they, they tend to occur near the surface. But it also makes sense because... That is where the narwhals spend most of their time, which means that that's also where they're going to bump into other narwhals that they may know or, you know, that they, they would want to communicate with. Finally, Susanna, I can suspect we know what the answer is to this, but would like to hear it anyway. What's the closest that you've gotten to a narwhal? Um, and, and what is it like to be so close to such an incredible creature? Well, I've stood in the water with my hand on a narwhal while it was being instrumented with, with our equipment. And it's, uh, th this is funny, this is difficult for me. Um, it, it's a very, it's the kind of thing you don't forget. You're in awe, basically. Uh, this animal is, is uh, superbly adapted to its environment and has done just fine, you know, without encountering humans for <laughs> millions of years. And, and now suddenly things are changing so rapidly for them in their environment in, in more ways than one. I mentioned the, the industrial stuff, but it's also the waters are warming. There's maybe not going to be ice in the summer any longer. And those are fundamental changes. And so 
we could so easily just be responsible for them disappearing. Susanna Blackwell is a bioacoustician with Greenridge Sciences. It's perhaps not so surprising that whales and other animals communicate using sound. It works at long distance and sound waves travel pretty fast. But new research reminds us that complex communication isn't limited to the cacophonous animal kingdom. Next, thinking outside the voice box. The messages are all around you. You've got whale on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. We're talking about non-human communication in this episode of Big Picture Science. There's a lot of it going on, but we'll miss it unless we take the time and develop the tools to study the messaging system of other species. Simon Gilroy is a professor in the botany department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. As a research scientist who studies how plants sense and respond to the world, his experiments are designed to produce quantitative data. But for as how he feels about his subjects, he's not neutral. I teach an introductory biology class on plant biology, and we start off with, I'm going to tell you why plants are 11 on the 1 to 10 scale of awesomeness. If you're not already convinced about this, okay, fair enough. You're a member of the clamorous animal kingdom, not the silent chlorophyll-producing world. But that potted philodendron in the corner, well, it's more like you than you know. Plants have exactly the same problems that we have, that sometimes the world is not a nice place to be. And if a plant's being eaten, it doesn't have the luxury of running away. But that doesn't mean it's without options. Plants are good at producing chemicals, so they can make toxins or something that tastes bad to act as a deterrent. And now we have some insight, literally, how they do this. In order to understand how chemical signals travel throughout a plant, Dr. Gilroy and his team engineered some plants to fluoresce when attacked. That's right, they light up. The reason the plants are glowing green is because we took a gene from a jellyfish, and that gene makes a protein that naturally glows green. And then they would watch, under a microscope, how the plant responds to a threat, such as being besieged by a fuzzy six-legged terror. The caterpillar starts chewing on the leaf, and you imagine the leaf is made up of thousands and thousands of cells. And those cells are being broken open by the caterpillar munching on it. And that is a really big stress. They did one more thing in order to watch what happens next, that is, to the poor plant being attacked. They engineered it so that the fluorescent protein is switched on in the presence of a substance within the cell called a calcium ion. When the calcium levels go up, the plant glows brightly. Calcium spikes, increases in calcium levels within a cell, carry information and trigger things. And so one of the great examples of that is the reason that your heart is beating at the moment is because within the muscle cells of the heart, there are spikes of calcium being produced and the calcium levels go up and that triggers a muscle contraction. And then the calcium levels go down and the muscles relax. So that calcium change is triggering the biology of your heart. That theme is carried through biology. So same deal with plants. They have spikes of calcium that go up and down inside their cells, and those trigger the downstream responses. 
And so the plants start to glow bright green at the location where the damage is occurring. But then researchers were in for a surprise. It was really sort of unexpected when we saw it. So, you know, if you pick up a leaf in the fall and look at it, you can see all the veins across the leaf. Those veins are the plumbing system of the plant. And in the plants, our engineered plants that glow in response to these signals, we see that that plumbing system lights up in a wave, moves through the plant. And this was the super exciting and really unexpected bit. It moves down through all of that plumbing, that vascular system, and then goes past the shoot and out into other leaves. And this isn't like those time-lapse videos showing plants slowly turning in the sun or opening their leaves. These chemical signals move fast. And it's all in real time. So we can watch the glow progress through the plant. We can see where it goes. And so it's letting us really for the first time visualize this information moving in real time through the plant. So it's clear that plants have a complex internal signaling system. One part of the plant can send signals to another part of the plant to tell it what's going on. So the more that Simon Gilroy and his team learn about plant communication the more impressed they become because, well, for one, the plant signaling doesn't stop at the leaf's edge. Plants have buddies. And there's also some really elegant and just very nice experimentation that says that an individual plant can send information to another individual plant. Things like when an insect is chewing on the leaves of one plant, volatile chemicals are released and those chemicals blow in the wind get to a plant nearby and that plant has sensors and it perceives that volatile chemical and it will switch on its own defenses. So there's clearly information flowing both within the organism but also between organisms. You didn't contradict me on my use of the word communicating, so it's not a matter of semantics to which you're sensitive. We we can say that plants communicate. Yeah, communication is information exchange. And we're inevitably, we're going to use the language that we use to describe how human beings, how we operate as far as taking in information and processing it when we're talking about plants, because that's the realm that we understand. And just have in the back of your minds that plants clearly are not animals. They're not green animals. They're going to do things a little bit differently. But I don't think there's a problem in using the language to try and and tease apart what they're doing. Well, I think this question will be on some people's mind. Is the plant feeling pain when that caterpillar chomps down on it. So that kind of depends on what you think pain really means. So there is clearly a signal being generated, so the receptors for wounding and damage are being triggered, and there is information which is being passed to the rest of the organism, in this case it would be to the rest of the plant, to trigger responses which are sort of the defense responses, the way of dealing with that absolute immediate damage. Uh, there's no brain and there's no nervous system. And so we usually think that the processing of the feeling of pain requires that processing component to it. And those structures don't exist in plants. So that's not a definite no. <laughs> um, I, can't, I think, again, it just gets down to we inevitably use the language of how humans perceive the world and how we process information and what happens to us to put other organisms in context. And I think that is an absolutely appropriate thing to do, because how else are we going to think about how these things operate? So there's damage, there's information, and there's response. So Whether I mean- that's pain, that gets down to what you think your definition of pain is. Simon, do you own any pets? Oh, absolutely, yeah. A couple of cats. Would you ever bite down on your cat's leg? Mm, I know better than to do that. Okay. (laughs) But you know that would create a lot of pain for your cat. So I'm wondering if when you're working with plants, if you ever hesitate, if you have any regrets in what you need to do to them to test their receptors, because they need to be damaged in some way, and, and do you ever pause and wonder if you should do it? Um, yeah, no, I don't think that at the moment we think that the information is being processed in the same way that, for instance, a mammal would process that information. Um, but yeah, it's a really interesting question. I don't think I have a really great answer for you for it. That is a good answer, though. Yeah. Now, when plants do sense that something is attacking them, uh, they have a range of options. They don't just have one 
response. They have an arsenal. And I wonder if you could give us an overview of um, the diversity in that arsenal of responses. Yeah, again, it's just the approach that plants are going to have is probably going to be around making things because that's what plants are really good at doing. They have lots of productivity. They make lots of sugars from photosynthesis. And so if you keep that in the back of your mind, some of the rapid responses are going to be things like making toxins And so a lot of the drugs that we use today come from plants. And the reason they have such big biological activities on humans is not because the plants are being altruistic and making them to sort of help with heart disease and things like that. They are they are making them to affect animals to stop them from eating them. So there's going to be a lot of things like toxins which are produced. There's chemicals which just taste bad. Uh, and those are going to be deterrents. There are proteins. Um, again, there's this great example of, of plants making a protein that doesn't directly kill insects. What it does is it gets into the gut of the insect and just stops the gut from being able to digest food. And again, it's all built around the, the chemical deterrent world. Then because plants are about building things and making things, another set of responses is going to be at the level of development. So if you chop a branch off a plant, then many times what the plant's response is, is to go like, oh, well, (laughs) that's unfortunate. You know what I should do? I'm going to make another branch. And they'll just do this replacement strategy where because they can build themselves again and again and again, providing the damage is not too big, their long-term response is a developmental growth one, which is just, I'm just going to build more of me and I'm going to grow my way out of this problem. Well, that's definitely a way in which plants differ from animals because if a lion chews off my arm, unfortunately, (laughs) I cannot grow another arm. Yes. Just go outside and look at plants and uh, look at a tree. And the theme of a tree is it's just repeating itself again and again. There's a branch that branches into a branch that branches into a branch, and there are leaves, and all the leaves are the same, and it's it's these almost like modules which are just made again and again and again. And that's part of the strategy that plants have adopted to dealing with the world, is they make modular organisms because you can rebuild the modules again and again. Our way of dealing with the world is really different. So if the lion comes to chew on you, the appropriate response is to run away screaming. And that's a really different way of dealing with that sort of damage. And it's because we don't have that rooted to the spot coupled to the immense amount of productivity that you get by being photosynthetic. Well, you've talked about the ways in which plants and animals are different in the way that they sense and respond to their world. At least we think they're different. Uh, But they are similar in other ways. And one way is that they both have a neurotransmitter receptor for glutamate, which is a neurotransmitter. Um, But plants don't have neurons, so why do they have the equivalent of a neurotransmitter receptor? Yeah, this is, I think, one of those absolutely fantastic insights into how biology works, as well as just a, a really interesting insight into plants and animals. So... Our recent work on that that wounding system and the long-distance signals it transmits suggests that when you break open the cell, the amino acid glutamate leaks from the cell somehow. And that amino acid's in the wrong place, and it triggers receptors that realize that it's there. And those receptors are called glutamate-like receptors, they're glutamate channel-like receptors. And they're very similar to the neural transmitters that are firing inside your nervous system at the moment. Glutamate is a neurotransmitter that activates these glutamate receptor channels that make nerves work. So there's a fascinating parallel there. The things which are being triggered downstream are are very clearly different. Plants don't have the anatomical structures that we know are nerves in mammals, so we can absolutely say that. But the proteins, these receptors, are very, very similar. And I think it just is this great insight that biology works out how to do things. And then if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It'll use the same piece of biology again and again and again to serve the same general function. And at that level, plants and animals are really, really similar. So the reason for this may be because plants and animals share a common ancestor. And so the glutamate neurotransmitter went on to become one thing in humans and serve another function in plants? Yeah, 
Yeah, and you can see that parallel in lots of other cases. And you think in the big picture of how biology works, plants and animals use DNA as the genetic material. Plants and animals use the molecule ATP for their energy. There are lots of cases where that common ancestry just plays out in front of you. There was a piece of molecular machinery which has worked, and so biology just keeps using it. These so-called glutamate receptors receive the signal of attack, whatever it might be happening, and then they set off the chain of communication to the rest of the plant, or is that done by the calcium ion channels? Well, so the, the glutamate receptor proteins themselves are channels in the membrane. They are pores in the membrane that let calcium into the cells. So you can imagine that they are directly generating the calcium increase. Um, so they're kind of the trigger to the whole thing. Calcium itself then will trigger a lot of molecular machinery inside cells to propagate what's going on. At least that's our model that we're working on. <laughs> so if you can picture a Rube Goldberg design, one thing triggers another, triggers another, triggers another. It's endlessly complex. Of course, it's much more elegantly designed in a plant than in a human, but perhaps that's a useful image. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The Rube Goldberg machines tend to be linear. Uh, so that one thing triggers another thing, triggers another thing. The one element that I think all biologists were really have embraced is that biology, the elegance comes from the fact that it's not linear. And you can think of it more of like pulling on the corner of a fishing net and the whole a network of responses starts to change. So, But it's the same idea that you, you tweak one area and up big response of lots of different things sequentially starts to happen throughout the cells. Do you think plants are intelligent? Um, well, what do you mean by intelligence, Molly? I mean, that, again, we're using the, the language of humans to try and explain biology. And again, I think that is a really appropriate thing to try and do because that's going to help us with understanding. But it really depends on what you mean by intelligence. Plants take in information and I would argue they're probably better at it than we are because we have the luxury of we don't really have to know what's going on. If something bad is going on, you don't precisely have to know what's going on to get up and walk away. But if you're a plant, you have to know exactly what is happening to you because you have to respond and the response is going to be the appropriate response to defend yourself or grow in the right way or whatever is the correct thing to do. Plants can take in the color of light, the intensity of light, whether they're watered or not, carbon dioxide levels, you know, lots of pieces of information, and integrate all of that information together in order to have the correct output. So at that level, they are taking in information, processing it, and triggering appropriate responses. Whether that you call that intelligence, I think, is entirely up to you. Um, I just call it awesome. I mean, it is remarkable how they do it without a brain. I have another one of those questions that I suspect is going to be answered with some hesitancy, <laughs> and then uh, it depends. Are you ready? All right. Do plants have intentionality when they communicate with other plants? Uh, how long would you like the hesitancy to be before I go, it depends? Uh, so let's take the example of one individual plant which is being chewed on providing information to its next-door neighbor that it's being chewed on, because that's a really easy one, I think, to think about. So we've got a plant. It's being chewed on by some insects, and the signal that's being released is a volatile chemical. That volatile chemical then goes, wafts in the wind to its next-door neighbor. The next-door neighbor has receptors that know that this is a damaged signal, and it will trigger responses in that individual. That second individual has not been eaten, but it starts defending itself just in case these insects decide that it's going to come over and start eating it. So the wording of intentionality means the initial plant meant to send that signal to the second plant. But it's much more likely, I think, that the signal is just produced as a almost like a byproduct of the initial attack. And it's just the awesomeness of biology that the plant next door has developed receptors that let it use that piece of information. But the initial plant is not sending out a purposeful distress signal to other plants. I don't think we have very good evidence that that is what's going on. I think we have much better evidence that it's just part of what happens when somebody starts chewing on you. If you could adopt one sensory system that a plant has for a day... <laughs> Which would it be? Ooh, that's a tricky one. Um, 
you know there's a hidden half of the plants that we don't usually think about, which is the root systems and so we see you know the leaves and we know leaves sense light and temperature and lots of other things. so there's a root system that reveals a lot about the earth and so plants have the ability to sense concentrations of nutrients and gradients of water and that would be a really different view of the world from the world that we inhabit and the sensory systems that we use. So that might be a really, really interesting insight into the dynamics that are going on underneath our feet that we just usually just never really think about. Of course, you'd have to stay put for the day if you had roots. Yeah, I didn't say it would be easy. (laughs) Yeah, it would bring you into the world of the challenges, but also the opportunities that you get by having that way of dealing with the environment around you. So plants have access to resources that humans don't. And so they're just different approaches to solving the conundrum of how do I stay alive and reproduce on the earth? Well, Simon Gilroy, thank you so much for joining us today and making a very strong case for plants being awesome. (laughs) Well, thanks, Molly. Simon Gilroy is a professor in the botany department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. You can find a link to his glowing green caterpillar-munched plants on our website, bigpicturescience.org. Well, birds do it, bees do it, whales do it, and now we know that plants do it. They all have complex communication systems. But what happens if we go to an even more basic organism? Up next, you can't see them, but they sure sense you, and they're biding their time. How microbes coordinate their attack. You're not the only chatty species. You've got whale on Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed, from AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories. It helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. In this episode of Big Picture Science, we've been talking about non-human communication and the sort of eavesdropping we can do on other species, assuming we have the right tools. Now, whether you realize it or not, at least at one point in your life, you have participated in a quorum. Okay, everyone, we cannot take a vote until we have a quorum of at least four assembly members. Can I vote twice? I live with a cat. Oh, sure, why not? It's getting late. All in favour of buying two additional potted plants for the foyer, say aye. Nay. Aye. Oh, and aye. And aye. There, we have it then. Okay, there's my ante. Deal me in. All right, hang on, hang on. To make this game interesting, we need a quorum. And that means at least two more players. And, as I've been telling you, there's no ante in Go Fish. A quorum among humans refers to the minimum number of people you need to conduct business. For biologists interested in quorum sensing, that minimum number of individuals needed to take action may be a minimum number of bacteria. When I say quorum sensing, I'm talking about the ability of bacteria to count how many of their brethren are around them, and then when there are enough, do something all together as a group. Quorum sensing is a hot area of research in microbiology, and this guy knows something about it. He coined the term. Yeah, I'm Pete Greenberg. I'm a microbiologist at the University of Washington, and what floats my boat is the way bacteria interact with each other. Earlier in the show, you heard how some mammals and plants communicate. Well, even a simpler organism like a bacterium has an impressive communication capability. 
which it uses to coordinate activity. Sure, they may be tiny, but you do want to know what bacteria are up to because some of them will make you their home. Understanding quorum sensing can help us to encourage healthy bacterial growth or to prevent that which is harmful. The idea is that bacteria release molecules into their environment and also sense what molecules are already there. This tells them how many of their buddies are nearby. And when they detect a quorum, they act. Their communication is sufficiently nuanced and variable. Well, it's tempting to call it language. A lot of people will talk about the language of bacteria, and it's a stretch to call what they do language. They have the ability to communicate by using small chemicals that they release into their environment. And their brethren can detect those chemicals. And if enough brethren are around all making the chemicals, then they signal everyone in the population to do some interesting behavior. An analogy that has been used before is smokers in a room. So if one smoker comes into a large room ahead of a meeting, there's a little bit of smoke in the room and nothing happens. But as more and more people accumulate and everybody's smoking, the level of the smoke in the room goes up. And at some point, there'll be a move to open the windows. And that will let smoke out of the room and there'll be... uh, a benefit to the group. So where should I imagine that quorum sensing is taking place? I mean, maybe in my bloodstream, but um, maybe other places. Where where does this go on? Yeah. So, you know, wherever bacteria congregate in groups, which is pretty much anywhere, that's when quorum sensing will occur. When bacteria are free in the ocean, they're at low population densities and quorum sensing isn't occurring. But if they're growing in a fish gut or in a light organ of a fish or on a piece of algae, they'll accumulate and quorum sensing will occur. We are interested in bacterial infections with pseudomonas in the lung. The idea is that when it first invades the host, it's at low population density. It doesn't display its weapons. And it can grow underneath the radar until it gets to a point where there are enough bacteria to make things that will hurt the host, and then they do that in a coordinated fashion. So when I think of uh, how quorum sensing works, it's because these individual bacteria are releasing, if you will, uh, some sort of signal molecule into the environment, whatever that environment is, blood, water, whatever, right? And then, then when it gets to a critical concentration, they've reached a quorum? Is, is, that, is that the deal? Yeah, that's the idea. So they make some inexpensive small molecule that is a proxy for their density. Each bacterium is making it. If there's just one bacterium in a large environment, as it's produced and put into the environment, it will diffuse away. If there are a lot of bacteria packed together, each bacterium making the small molecule, then the concentration in the environment goes up. And when the concentration of these small molecules reaches a a critical point, it can interact with a receptor that is present on every bacterial cell. And when it does that, the bacteria know there are enough of their brethren around, and they commence to do these social activities. You point out that the signals are small molecules. Uh, in other words, they're, they're releasing some sort of chemicals into the into the water there or whatever <laughs> the local environment yeah. is. And so um, what kind of chemicals are being released here? Can you give an example? Yeah, I'll give an example. So when we first started working on this, we were working on a particular really interesting bacterium. It's a marine bacterium that makes light. And as this story unfolded, we learned that the chemicals were small, special isolated amino acids that can dissolve through the membrane of a bacterial cell and stay in solution in the environment. So they're really a proxy for how many bacteria are there. Uh, And then in other types of bacteria, other types of quorum sensing signals are used. So in gram-positive bacteria, like the ones uh, that cause skin infections, staphylococcus, 
they use peptide molecules, short strings of amino acids. And it is a case of convergent evolution where there's a need to be able to do this, but different groups have solved the problem in different, slightly different ways. So quite often bacteria control the production of antibiotics by quorum sensing. And the idea here is that a group of bacteria can make a cloud of antibiotic that it's surrounded by and defend itself from competitors. Often extracellular enzymes, like ones that will break down protein, are controlled by quorum sensing. And again, the idea is that a single cell can't make enough of this extracellular protein to break down proteins in its environment to get anything in return. But a whole group working as a pack can break down protein into small bits that each cell can take up and use as an energy source. Okay. It sounds like a, you know, a wolf pack. Uh, they, they can't bring down their prey if there's only one of them or maybe two of them, but if they, if they have five of them or whatever the number is, right, then they might be successful and everybody benefits. Yeah, I think a, a wolf pack is a good analogy, and actually it's been used to describe this sort of behavior in bacteria in the, in the scientific literature. So it sounds like this is an obvious uh, evolutionary advantage for the bacteria to be able to, uh, you know, bring up a, a critical mass of bacteria to do something. And so I, I assume this is just an evolutionarily produced capability that they have, and we maybe shouldn't be so surprised that it exists. Well, in retrospect, we're not surprised that it exists. When I started in this area, nobody imagined well, maybe two or three people in the world imagine that bacteria had the ability to communicate with each other. Bacteria were sort of thought of as little bags of enzymes that were just designed to multiply. Now we know better, and we know that the same selective pressures that have given way to cooperation in the animal world and to communication in the animal world have been at play with bacteria. Pete, I'm kind of curious how you came up with the term quorum sensing. It's a great term, uh, and uh, you coined it. I mean, you know, where you just, I don't know, <laughs> sitting at dinner one night, and you, think, you know, quorum sensing, that's, that's how to describe this stuff? Yeah, that's pretty close to how it happened. The story's even a little more fanciful. When we first discovered that more bacteria than just this marine luminous bacteria were using quorum sensing. We were invited to write a little mini review for a esteemed microbiology journal, the Journal of Bacteriology. And we wrote and wrote, and the last thing to do was come up with a good title. And we were having trouble. And Steve Winans went to a family Thanksgiving dinner and was telling his brother-in-law about this. And he said, oh, it's like there has to be a quorum. And we thought, oh, that would be a great title. We'll call this Quorum Sensing and Response. I, I take it you don't get discounts at restaurants for being introduced as the guy who uh, invented the term. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is our own little pond. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It sounds like the bacteria are already well on the way to being like the Borg, uh, combining their individual efforts, uh, maybe like social insects, right? When it comes to, you know, microbes, can understanding these things help in our fight, for example, against infectious diseases? Well, I think there are two really valuable reasons to study quorum sensing. One is this idea that it's a target to develop novel ways to control populations of bacteria to either defeat infections or get bacteria to do things that we want where we want them, improve the ability, the production of bacteria in uh, biotechnology plants to make antibiotics. And equally important in my mind is that we can study quorum sensing to understand fundamental principles about why any organisms, large or small, cooperate and communicate and how that cooperation and communication might 
be stable or unstable in groups. Well, finally, Pete, it does seem reasonable to uh, assume that communication has many survival benefits, and as a consequence, nature has taken whatever communication mechanism exists, you know, whether it's sound, like for us and other animals, or visual stimuli, or smells, or chemical signals, and it exploits it. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't Maybe we shouldn't be all that surprised that if you can communicate, uh, evolution is going to figure out a use for that ability. I think that's exactly right. And um, it has been a sea change in microbiology as the field has come to understand that. And it's been a sea change in my lifetime, which has been really exciting for me, sort of toiling away on something everybody thought was crazy at first, and now everybody takes for granted. Pete Greenberg, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Ah, it's my pleasure. Pete Greenberg is a microbiologist at the University of Washington. Well, what we're hearing in the show is that if we take the time, we can tap into the communication messages of a lot of different species. But the other thing is that some of the details were also interesting to me, in particular the clicks of the narwhals, because the same technology is used by bats, the same technology is used by radar, by sonar. A short pulse of sound is the best for finding very detailed information about your environment or maybe just finding something to eat. A thread that runs through all of the stories that we heard was the role of sociality. In the case of whales, there's a a social component to their conversation with plants. Plants not only uh, send these pulses throughout their leaves when they're in danger, but that message jumps to other plants. And then, of course, with the microbes, they communicate in order to coordinate an attack. Power in numbers. Thanks to the unique communication talents of those who help us make this show. Senior producer Gary Niederhoff, production assistant Sarah Derwin, operations manager Barbara Vance, and we wouldn't have had a quorum this week without the vocal talent of Emma Bentley. We are also grateful for financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life. And of course, a big thanks to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to an episode of Big Picture Science called You've Got Whale. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science episodes, well, you'll find them in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And you will also find links there to our guests, including links to the videos of glowing green plants and to the sounds of narwhals. You may be listening to our radio show, but did you know we're also a podcast? Subscribe to the BiPiSci podcast and you'll never miss an episode. You'll find links on our website to the platforms that carry us. 